Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. We're going to look at the final military victory of Judas Maccabeus, the rededication of the temple, Hanukkah. And what does that have to do with Christmas? Oh, and by the way, did the church get the date of Christmas wrong? Some people say Jesus wasn't born in December. We'll deal with that uh, later on. But let's look at uh, one of the readings from this week from the books of the Maccabees. This comes to us from 1 Maccabees chapter 2. It was the Old Testament reading yesterday. And it has to do with, really, this is the last rod. And we've seen the martyrdom of Eleazar. We heard about the martyrdom of the mother and her seven sons in the last episode. And and finally, the uprising begins. Let's see what happens with Mattathias and his sons. This is, again, First Maccabees chapter 2. The officers of the king in charge of enforcing the apostasy came to the city of Modiin to organize the sacrifices. Many of Israel joined them, but Mattathias and his sons gathered in a group apart. Then the officers of the king addressed Mattathias, You are a leader, an honorable and great man in this city, supported by sons and kin. Come now, be the first to obey the king's command, as all the Gentiles and the men of Judah and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons shall be numbered among the king's friends, and shall be enriched with silver and gold and many gifts. But Mattathias answered in a loud voice, Although all the Gentiles in the king's realm obey him, so that each forsakes the religion of his fathers and consents to the king's orders, yet I and my sons and my kin will keep to the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the commandments. We will not obey the words of the, of the king, nor depart from our religion in the slightest degree. As he finished saying these words, a certain Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modain, according to the king's order. When Mattathias saw him, he was filled with zeal. His heart was moved and his just fury was aroused. He sprang forward and killed him upon the altar. At the same time, he also killed the messenger of the king who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he showed his zeal for the law, just as Phineas did with Zimri, son of Salu. Then Mattathias went through the city, shouting, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant follow after me. Thereupon he fled to the mountains with his sons, leaving behind in the city all their possessions. Many who sought to live according to righteousness and religious custom went out into the desert to settle there. Okay, so let's let's stop the reading right there. And again, that was the Old Testament reading from yesterday. Well, I'd tell you, these books of the Maccabees could be a feature film. Lots of action, lots of intrigue, lots of battles. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the battles in just a minute. But essentially what's happening is uh, in the city of Modiin, just as what was going on in Jerusalem and in other parts of Judah, King Antiochus IV Epiphanes, this wicked a Greek Seleucid king is trying to enforce paganism on the region, trying to get the Jews to abandon uh, their laws, their dietary laws, uh, trying to get them to eat pork. Many martyrs refused to do so, as we learned about. Trying to get them to make pagan sacrifices. And probably what, what was happening here 
in this passage that you just read, uh, this certain Jew tried to offer probably a sacrifice of a pig, a very unclean animal uh, to the Jews on the altar. And Mattathias just, that is, he just snaps. That is the last straw. And the elderly, the elderly Mattathias, uh, he, he makes another sacrifice on the altar. He kills this guy, and then he kills the messenger of the king, tears down the altar, and, and that is it. He has, he has to flee then. He knows uh, he is a wanted man. But before he does that, he gets as many rebels to go with him as possible into the wilderness he shouts, let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant follow after me. So they go into the mountains with his sons. And one of his sons is the famous Judas the Maccabee, Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabee. So we're going to talk about him in a second. And so the rebels begin to go into the mountains and that's where they hide out and they wait for an opportune time to strike. So the battle is on. It is on. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. So, obviously, when it comes to warfare, uh, leadership is so important. Think about General Patton. Think about all the great military leaders throughout history. Napoleon, you need to have a great leader to make any kind of headway. And, and the Maccabean Revolt was successful. They were able to, to win these battles because they had great, great leadership. And, and Mattathias, who kind of touched off this whole thing, uh, with the episode that we just uh, read, he had wonderful warriors uh, working for him, not the least of which were his own sons. The greatest son that he had was Judas, Judas the Maccabee. And very similar to King David, you know, as Father Joe Panessa says uh, in his book, Exile and Return, I'm going to be uh, drawing on his work extensively, and uh, he co-wrote this with Dr. Lori Manhart. I read this stuff so that you don't have to. <laughs> I study this stuff and I, and I share what I learned with you. Uh, as he writes, uh, there's a lot of similarities really between Judas the Maccabee and King David. Now, obviously, Judas the Maccabee, he wasn't of the royal lineage. Um, he wasn't of the royal house of David, but he had that warrior's heart, just like David did. And David, of course, slaying the giant Goliath. And Judas was that kind of leader. And Judas, here's the interesting thing. He, he, he was the leader of the military part of the movement, but one of the other sons of Mattathias was the leader of the political side of things. And th this is pretty cool. This, this is pretty amazing uh, how this happened. Mattathias showed a lot of wisdom by making his son Simon hold the position of basically the governor. Simon was the governor and Judas was basically the general. So what was Simon's role? Well, in this division of powers, neither one of these sons of Mattathias claimed to be the king. Now, there were other, other sons too, but these two were the, were the key figures. So Simon was known as the man of wise counsel. And you can read about him, 1 Maccabees 2.65. Judas Maccabeus was the mighty warrior. He was the commander of the army. So again, the governor or the mayor, if you will, and then the general. So what was going on with Simon was that he tried to take care of the home front. He, he got in some battles too, and he acquitted himself quite nicely. But his job was really to look after uh, the families, the women, the children that were not fighting. 
uh, those who were elderly, those who were sick. He took care of those guys so that the soldiers could go out there with really high morale and fight, knowing that their family was well taken care of. That was one less worry on their plate. So they, they had a, a wonderful synergy between them, and, and this arrangement worked really, really well because they were both devoted to their dad, to the mission, and there, there was no fighting, there was no one-upmanship, no no one trying to wrest control or power uh, from the other brothers. And it's kind of interesting, too, as, as Father Panessa mentions, you could really say that Simon and Judas, they're, they're kind of, in a sense, you know, inheritors of, of great spiritual tradition because their patron saints, I guess you could say, were the brothers Simon and Judah, the sons of Jacob, the original Israelite, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So Simon and Judah, uh, the patriarchs, you know, they're, they're, these, these Maccabean brothers, Simon and Judah, were named after them. So uh, that's pretty cool. So where does this name Maccabee come from, by the way? Where does this name appear? Well, the, the Hebrew term Macbeth, uh, not to be confused with Shakespeare's Macbeth, of course. Uh, Macbeth gets translated into Greek. It's a Hebrew term translated into Greek as Maccabeo. And then it goes into Latin and it becomes Maccabeus. And that's where we get the English word Maccabee from. So that, that's where it comes from. It comes originally from the Hebrew term in the Old Testament, Macbeth. And what does that mean? It actually means hammer. So here, here's a couple of examples from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it says, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry. So neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple while it was being built. Isaiah 44, 12. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals. He shapes it with hammers, with hammers. There's that word Macbeth again, and forges it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So Judas Maccabee, Maccabee is really a nickname for Judas, Judas the hammer. And he he got that nickname. He earned that uh, by his fighting skills and as Father Panessa says, he's really a, a hammer. A hammer is also for building as well, right? And what, what Judas was trying to do was rebuild uh, Jewish culture. He was trying to refasten, like a hammer might fasten a nail, refasten the Jews to their traditional religion, which was under threat uh, from the paganizing influences of the wicked king Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We're looking at the books of the Maccabees, the incredible battles led by Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. And by the way, when you go to Israel and when I take people there on pilgrimage, there's actually an Israeli beer called Maccabee. So I guess some people try to get hammered with the hammer, as it were. Uh, not a good idea. Drunkenness is a sin. Anyways, just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, let's talk about the military campaigns of Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. Well, he was very, very successful in his first battle. And you can read about these, by the way, in First in Maccabees, Second Maccabees. In his first battle with these rebel forces that were kind of hiding out in the mountains. And really, Judas Maccabeus really, in a sense, invented guerrilla warfare. This idea of hiding in the mountains, very similar to the Taliban or something like that. They're hiding in the hills, hiding in the mountains. This is asymmetrical warfare. So we know modern day examples of this. 
uh, from the Middle East. But really, Judas was really the first guy to use this strategy. And, and people don't give him enough credit for this. This was a, a huge turning point in the way that warfare happened. And so we'll, we'll talk about this in just a second. But he defeated in his first battle the commander Saron at the Battle of Beth Horon. Now, the Syrian king, when he, saw, when he heard about this, uh, he was shocked because he sent 40,000 infantry into the Holy Land, try, trying to really create a genocide uh, of the Jews. And so they had no idea how good these guerrilla forces were going to be. And, and the other thing that they weren't counting on, of course, behind all of this, is God himself. The power of God. God was with this army, Judas's army. And so when the Syrians were fighting against them, it wasn't, it wasn't the usual battle that they were used to. Let's say they were fighting against the Romans, right? It would have been cavalry against cavalry, you know, soldiers on horseback against other soldiers on horseback. The infantry would have been fighting against other infantrymen. That's not the way it went in this war because, um, and really all of their guys on horseback, it was in many ways kind of held them back in these battles against the Maccabees. In, in fact, their, their usual strategies were a bit of a disadvantage. It was the wrong kind of army. As Father Joe Panessa says, absolutely the wrong kind of army to deal with what Judas had up his sleeve. And so this is what he did. The great, the great victory of Judas Maccabeus was he created this army really from nothing, from scratch. He, the, remember, the Jews did not have an army of their own for hundreds of years, it was over 400 years, 420 years. Because remember, they were carried away into exile by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And this doesn't take place until 166 BC, this Maccabean revolt. That's 420 years, centuries without an army. Warfare had changed. Military strategies had changed. Um, the Babylonians had, as Joe Panessa says, heavy infantry. The Greeks had light infantry. And so Judas has to train all these guys who weren't professional soldiers and turn them into an army to fight against the forces of the wicked King Antiochus. That is no small task. And this is why we know for sure uh, God was with them. And so once they kind of got going, and maybe he had like the training camps in the wilderness, uh, Al-Qaeda style, I don't know, but... But they had a lot of advantages. Number one, they were really playing a home game. They knew the land. They knew the territory, like the back of their hands. And so the invading armies did not. The other thing is they had absolute, they were all on the same page, absolute loyalty. Everybody believed in Judas Maccabeus as the leader, as the general. Everybody believed in the cause. They were willing to give their lives for it. That wasn't the case with the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes, a lot of the soldiers, they were mad at this guy because they didn't like the way he was governing their, their home regions, where they were from. Uh, a lot of the people back home were suffering. They didn't necessarily believe in this guy as a leader. Plus, the Syrian army, they had been through a lot of other battles in the past with the Romans, uh, with the Parthians, and, and a lot of their greatest soldiers were already dead. So this is kind of the B team. This is, this is the second string. These are the guys from the bench that were fighting against the, Jew, the Jewish warriors. So they were at a huge disadvantage there. And that's one of the reasons why Judas Maccabeus was able to have such great, 
great military success against them. All right, well, this is what happened at the end of the day. They were able to, as they started winning battles, and of course they eventually won the whole war, when they started winning, they eventually took over the region of Jerusalem where the temple was. And as soon as they did that, the, the war itself was not over, but that battle had been won. As soon as they could, they rededicated the temple on what is now known as Hanukkah, the Feast of Hanukkah. i got to tell you a little bit about that. And that is in the reading for today, today's Old Testament reading, which comes to us from 1 Maccabees chapter 4. Judas and his brothers said, Now that our enemies have been crushed, let us go up to purify the sanctuary and rededicate it. So the whole army assembled and went up to Mount Zion early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, that is the month of Chislev, in the year 148. They arose and offered sacrifice according to the law on the new altar of burnt offerings that they had made. On the anniversary of the day on which the Gentiles had defiled it, on that very day it was reconsecrated with songs, harps, flutes, and cymbals. All the people prostrated themselves and adored and praised heaven who had given them success. For eight days they celebrated the dedication of the altar and joyfully offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of deliverance and praise. They ornamented the facade of the temple with gold, crowns, and shields. They repaired the gates and the priest's chambers and furnished them with doors. There was great joy among the people now that the disgrace of the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and the entire congregation of Israel decreed that the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness on the anniversary every year for eight days from the 25th day of the month Chislev. Okay, so that is the scriptural roots of the Feast of Hanukkah. And this is one of the reasons why it's important that the books of the Maccabees are included in Scripture because they're not, this this great feast obviously is not in the other books of the Old Testament. This was the last great Jewish feast that was instituted before the time of Jesus. So don't forget, don't forget, the whole reason why they had to rededicate the temple in the first place was because the wicked king Antiochus Epiphanes ordered the Jews to sacrifice unclean animals, including swine, pig's flesh. And so, and this was the last straw, the the abomination that causes desolation was when Antiochus offered a swine sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. And he he tried to rededicate the temple to Zeus, who was, of course, at the top of Mount Olympus, at the top of the pantheon of, of Greek gods, and, and, and really, this is nothing more, nothing less than turning the temple over to the enemy, to the devil, because as the Old Testament says, the gods of the Gentiles are devils. Really, behind these false gods, very often are demons in disguise. And so, you know, they're, they're nothing. They, they don't exist. But at times, some of these false pagan gods of the ancient world, people were actually worshiping demons in disguise. And so the worst possible thing that could happen here is the flesh of a swine offered on the holy altar. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 8 says, their flesh you shall, speaking specifically about pigs, their flesh you shall not eat, 
their carcasses you shall not touch. Now, of course, these dietary regulations are no longer in force in the New Covenant time, but at the time they were. And so when when the Greeks tried to force uh, the Jews to eat this, this pork, not only was it against the, the dietary laws, but don't forget, this was also probably sacrificed to Zeus on their altar, which really links this, uh, not only were they breaking the food law, but they would be committing idolatry if they engaged in this practice, because it really has to do with worship of false gods. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, it's the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And so, hence the need to rededicate the temple. The temple was, because it had been desecrated by these pagan sacrifices, in the minds of the Jews, the entire Holy Land had become polluted. So it was now considered unclean. And and to them, as Father Joe Panessa says, the whole world was then thrown out of kilter. Because really the the temple, that is the center of the world. Uh, The whole world thrown off balance. And so they could not rest until they had set things right. And so really this this happened, this this they were able to gain the territory uh, around Jerusalem because of the great victory at Emmaus. Now we know about the Emmaus Road experience, Jesus and the disciples in Luke 24. Well, Emmaus is not too far from Jerusalem. And in the battle of Emmaus, Judas the Maccabee, he took 3,000 men who really didn't have very many resources, and he defeated 5,000 soldiers of the Syrian general Gorgias. Uh, you can read about this in 1 Maccabees chapter 4. And so this is a a wonderful military victory that enabled them to dedicate the temple, rededicate the temple. And they did it on the 25th day of the month, the Jewish month of Chislev. And they actually did it on the anniversary of the day. That was the very day that the sanctuary had been defiled uh, by the Gentiles. That's the day that they purified it. So a lot of poetic justice there. Now, let's talk about how this relates to Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ. Because a lot of people want to say that the church got this wrong. All right, well, let's let's talk about uh, when this happened. The Jewish month of Chislev is a lunar month, and it happens at the time of the winter solstice. Obviously, the winter solstice is the shortest day in the year. To them, it's the first day of the winter season. Julius Caesar, of course, When he started his Julian calendar, he kind of modeled it after the Seleucid calendar. Remember, the the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus is the villain uh, in the Maccabean literature. And so Julius Caesar, when he started the Julian calendar, he called the last month of the year December. And it, of course, happens at the same time as the Jewish month known as Chislev. In 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 8, it says, They decreed by public ordinance and vote, did the Jews, that the whole nation should observe these days every year, this eight-day feast of Hanukkah, the rededication of the temple, also known as the Festival of Lights. And Josephus, the great historian of those times, the great Jewish historian of those days, he writes this. He says, This festival is called Lights. I suppose the reason was because there appeared to us this liberty beyond our hopes. And thence, this was the name that was given to that festival. He writes this in his Antiquities of the Jews. Okay, so let's talk about this question of Christmas. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. A lot of people want to say that Jesus was not actually born 
in the month of December. The biblical scholar Richard France is a good example of those who would say that Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. He says, quote, the traditional date of Christmas is perhaps the least likely from a historical point of view, end of quote. One of the reasons why scholars say this is because the celebration of Christmas on December the 25th doesn't really get started till the 4th century, which seems really, really late to them. Also, some people say that shepherds in their fields, as Luke talks about in Luke chapter 2, uh, that's not historically reliable. This would have actually happened in Israel between March and November, they say. So it seems like December is not really when it happened. Well, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Let's, let's look at what Dr. Luke has to say in his gospel. In Luke, Luke is really well known, as we've talked about many times before. Luke is a great, great historian. He really did his homework, and archaeology has proved him correct time and time again. Well, in his gospel, Luke talks about the two annunciations. The annunciation to Zechariah, when Gabriel says, hey, basically, you're going to be the dad of John the Baptist. You know, the child will be born through natural means, but you're, you know, advanced in age. So it's, this is what's going to happen. And then there's a second annunciation to Mary. In Nazareth. So th- think about this. And Father Joe Panessa says, listen, think about how this relates to the Jewish calendar, these two annunciations. The Archangel Gabriel first appears to Zechariah where? In the holy place in the temple, because he's on duty as a priest in the temple. Now, only one of the priests was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and that only happened one time a year. Feast of Yom Kippur on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. When does that happen? Late September. Late September. What do they do? They blow the shofar. That's that ram's horn. You've probably seen uh, images of this. And, and when, really, when they do this, it's a sign of saying, God has spared us yet again for another year. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Okay, so that's when that First annunciation of Zechariah happens in September, late September, really at the end of the month. Later on, the archangel Gabriel goes to the Virgin Mary and says, hey, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah, Jesus, going to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, but here's something else for you. By the way, your cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant, and she is six months along already. She's in the sixth month of her, of her pregnancy. Now, hang on here. If John the Baptist was conceived at the end of September, then guess what? Six months after that, late March. That's when the Annunciation to Mary happens. So Jesus was conceived in late March. Obviously, he's born nine months later. That brings us to, if my math is correct, the end of December. So Luke says the Annunciation was in March, and the Nativity, the birth of our Lord, in December, just like the church calendar says. So December the 25th, March the 25th for the Annunciation, December the 25th, the church didn't invent that, didn't try to copy some pagan feast. The church is actually following the great historian, St. Luke. And that's when Hanukkah happens. And And there's so many things in the New Testament that connect Hanukkah with Jesus, the light of the world. This is the Feast of Lights, and Jesus is the light of the world. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Kale Clark. If you missed an episode, you can always catch them in podcast form on the relevant 
Radio app. I'll join you in the next one, and I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio for the K.O. Clark Show. Until next time, God bless you.